This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. There's more and more municipalities asking Big Oil to pay up for the damage caused by climate change. This is kind of a trend among municipal councils in British Columbia where you'll have a city council say, let's send a letter to these big oil companies and say, you owe us money because of the damage being caused by global warming and climate change and the greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere from from your dirty products. So let's make them pay. This is kind of like the same theory as let's go after big tobacco and make them pay for the damage caused by cancer and all the other terrible things that happen with tobacco. So some other municipalities have done it, and here we go in Vancouver now. Vancouver could become the latest and the largest BC city to ask fossil fuel companies to pay up to cover the cost of climate change in their cities. Check out the story on this front page of the Vancouver Sun today by Dan Fumano has has all of that. Do you think that's a good thing? Would you support BC municipalities banding together to sue fossil fuel companies or ask them to pay to recover costs associated with the impacts of climate change? That's our hot question of the day. Would you say, yes, go for it, get the money, no, no point? Or would you say there's no, you're not sure? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter or phone me on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson uh, pushing this one at City Council. She's got a, a motion at City Hall on this today. I find it sometimes hypocritical for cities to be saying to fossil fuel companies, you got to pay us for damage from climate change at the same time they're doing things like encouraging the cruise ship industry to come here and encouraging tourists to come here burn up all those fossil fuels on those cruise ships come on come on down to vancouver and spend all your money we love it we want the jobs we want your money I mean, doesn't that cause climate change, too? I mean, look at all the coal being shipped out of the port of Vancouver. You see the city trying to shut that down. I mean, I don't, you know, I find it kind of hypocritical sometimes personally, this kind of stuff. And I also think that you're going to ask Big Oil to pay money. Good luck. I mean, they tried to get money from Big Tobacco. I remember doing stories on that like 20 years ago on British Columbia suing Big Tobacco. I don't think they got a dime out of tobacco still going through the courts. But you vote on this today on Twitter, at CKNW on Twitter. Make sure you follow me while you're there, please. Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Should the city of Vancouver ask big oil companies to help pay for the cost of climate change? That's an idea catching on with more municipalities around the province as they send climate accountability letters to fossil fuel companies asking them to help pay for the damage caused by their products. Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson thinks it's a good idea. She joins me now. Hi, Councilor. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Tell me about your motion at City Council. Well, it's asking the mayor to write to um, the fossil fuel companies and ask them to pay for some 
some of the damage that's caused by their project, and it's also asking the mayor to write to um, the province and the feds um, to ask other levels of government to basically make it easier to hold fossil fuel companies liable uh, in 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 law. What kind of costs are the city is the city facing from climate change? Well, we've got one estimate of a billion dollars for sea level rise, but there's all kinds of other stuff. Um, one of the things I, I learned when I just became a council member was that our whole sewer system is based on gravity. So mm. if sea level rises, that pushes gravity up. So that means you have to change a whole whack of stuff, right? You have to have pumps and everything. So, I mean, and that's just one thing, right? Like cleaning. Remember when we had that big windstorm in Stanley Park? If we get more right. of those and then we have to go cleaning up after that and the heat, the city spends tons of money trying to, you know, fund uh, cooling centers in the downtown east side for, for people that don't have air conditioners, things like that. Okay, so so the plan is, or the idea would be to send letters to all these companies and saying, hey, send us money to help pay for this? Yeah. Okay, do you really expect them to do that? Or is, or is well, this just it, symbolic? It's uh, It's... You know, if they sent money, I'm sure we would take it. And I think it's setting the stage for a, maybe a legal case if we can pull that together. You know, there have been legal cases for <clears throat> asbestos causing harm, for cigarettes causing harm, for breast plant implants calling, breast implants causing harm. Right. And this is like the biggest harm ever. And so we're saying not that they should have to pay all the costs of it, but some of the costs so the taxpayers aren't hit with all the costs. How realistic is it, do you think, to, to launch a successful lawsuit like that? Because I remember covering uh, lawsuits against big tobacco in British Columbia like 20 years ago, and I don't think we've got a penny out of big tobacco. It's just been going through the courts for 20 years. Well, that's one of the things in this uh, resolution is to uh, write to the federal and the provincial government requesting that they enact legislation that would hold the companies liable for the climate-related harms. So um, similar to uh, Ontario has one. Okay. Are, are these big oil companies the ones responsible for this, or is it the people that consume their products? I mean, aren't we all responsible for this, for climate change? I mean, well, nobody's, nobody's, not, forced, nobody's forced to buy gasoline and oil, right? We're not denying that. We're just saying that these are the guys that are profiting from it and that they should pay some of the costs. The people that drive cars will be paying some of the costs too. Your listeners, me, you, we'll all be paying costs privately and through our taxes. This is just to say the oil companies should pay some of it. Okay, I guess uh, Vancouver would just be the latest in a series of municipalities that have sent these t kind of letters to big oil companies. I mean, has this has this worked anywhere else? I mean, have any other municipalities or governments said, "Hey, big oil, we want you to pay for this"? Has any have any municipality anywhere recovered any money at all? This is the beginning of the procedure. It's not the end. The end will be recovering money. The end will also be. Um, letting companies know that people are getting tired of them making a profit off things that are helping to destroy the planet. And I think it's good for companies to feel this kind of pressure. Okay, and speaking to Vancouver City Councilor Gene Swanson, uh, 
do you think there's any climate change hypocrisy going on in the city of Vancouver or anywhere else when, you know, you can say on the one hand, we want big oil to pay the damages, but on the other hand, the city supports a, a booming cruise ship industry, right? That adds to climate change. I mean, we want people to come here in cruise ships. All these tourists go downtown, spend all their money. That's all great for the Vancouver economy. Well, it's also contributing to climate change and greenhouse gases, isn't it? It's kind of, it seems kind of hypocr- hypocritical. I know. I, I haven't actually seen any specific instances of the city supporting the cruise ship industry, and I do have a letter in my inbox inviting me to a cruise ship tour to see all how environmentally correct they are, of which I'm a bit skeptical. But Well, you, um, well, you don't think we should shut the down city the city cr- did just... The city did just pass the climate emergency uh, motion with six actions that are designed to help reduce fossil fuel um, use. And I think um, we can look at other things like cruise ships, too. I think we should. Yeah, but you don't think we should shut down the cruise ship industry, though, do you? I think we need to look at ways of if we if we uh, are going to have cruise ships, that they have to be uh, not be so polluting. Okay, what about all the other stuff that goes on in the city? Like, you know, I mean, we export a whole bunch of coal out of the uh, Van- out of the port of Vancouver. Should we shut that down too? Like, I'm just wondering how, you know, if the city's going to turn around and say, oh, you oil companies, you guys owe us money now, mm-hmm. are they going to turn around at the same time and say, well, we're going to shut down, we want the cruise ship industry to shut down, we want coal exports to shut down, we're going to stop logging and mining? Look, Mike. What? This is a climate emergency. Yeah. It's a climate emergency. We're going to have huge, huge, huge problems if we don't act. People are beginning to act. We're taking steps. So this is one step. We need to take more steps. We will be, hopefully, taking more steps. I know. I just, and I just, in, my op- in my opinion, yeah. those steps that we take have to involve everybody. They can't say, we can't say, oh, we're going to shut down the tar sands without giving those people that work in the tar sands good jobs, you know, making solar panels or building housing for the homeless or building wind turbines. We have to do that all together. This is a small step, a very small baby step. Mm-hmm. I think it's a step that needs to be taken, and we need to do more steps, and I hope everybody, all your listeners will help us do those steps and help make sure that we include all the people who are affected so that nobody okay. is affected disproportionately. Okay, where does this go from here? I know you've got a motion at City Hall, City Council. When is that going to be in front of Council on this? Um, t- today. Today, okay. And you're, you're, yeah. ask, you're asking Council to support you to send these letters out? Yes. Correct? Okay, are you, are you confident that'll pass? I mean, have you talked to your other councillors? Are they all on board with this? I think it'll pass. I hope it'll pass. We've got quite a few speakers coming to support it. And we've had quite a few letters supporting it. All right. Well, we're following it very closely. Thank you for coming on. Okie doke, Mike. All right. Thank you. That bye-bye. Is, bye-bye. Yeah. That is Vancouver City Councilor Gene Swanson asking Big Oil to help pay the costs of climate change. He's got a motion at City Council today. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. Let's talk about consumers using social media platforms. Despite all those concerns about privacy, fake news, 
Uh, it doesn't matter. The uh, usage of these uh, services like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram continues to grow. Let's check in now with Steve Mossop about that. He's the president of Insights West. Got a very interesting survey out on it now. Hi, Steve. Yes, it is an interesting topic area. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. What did you find out in your survey? Well, the key thing, and with all the disputes and controversy over privacy issues and Facebook being in the media and uh, lawsuits against them, uh, Facebook by far dominates the social media agenda. We've got uh, 82% of Canadians who use uh, Facebook on a weekly basis, and that number is as high as uh, 65% who use it daily. So, uh, And those numbers have gone up three years in a row that we've been tracking it. Okay, so even though we've we've heard about the privacy concerns, privacy breaches, uh, fake news, we've heard all the concerns. Do Canadians just are they worried about that kind of stuff, or they're not, or they just keep using Facebook despite the concerns? They use it despite the concerns. So we have another stat here that says eighty percent of social media users are really quite concerned about uh, the fact that Facebook and other social media uses their behaviors and activities online to determine news and information they see. So that's a huge concern. Uh, we also have 65% who are worried about uh, being tracked, uh, their behaviors being tracked and used to trigger advertising. So the concerns are there, uh, but despite that, there's no, uh, there's no layup. And this doesn't apply just to Facebook. We've got YouTube went from 49% weekly usage two years ago to 63% today. Uh, Instagram's been a huge winner, going from 20% to 39%. That's driven by millennials, but also other age cohorts. Uh, Twitter somewhat flat. We've got uh, uh, LinkedIn growing as well. We've got Snapchat growing. So all across the board, despite our concerns, and you know, even water cooler conversations, Mike, that any, everybody has about, oh, I think I'm going to lay off on social media. The, the reality is, and the stats prove otherwise. Okay. Is there any kind of um, generational uh, differences on this? I mean, I, I note your poll breaks it down by millennials, Generation X, and baby boomers, which I think is a really good way to kind of break it down. What are the differences among those uh, those generations? Let me uh, just pull it up here. We do have some pretty major differences between the age cohorts. Yeah. And we look at Facebook. You know, there's always a perception that millennials aren't on Facebook, but it's not true. They are. They're a little bit lower. So the Facebook crowd is really driven by 30, 35 to 54 but it's only about 10 points lower for those in the lower age cohort. Uh, we've got YouTube uh, that's about universal across the board. Uh, Instagram is, is uh, up around over 50 to 60% in the millennial category versus 39% overall. So Instagram is definitely a domain of youth as well as Snapchat, and we all know that. But uh, it's, it's surprising, too, the numbers when you look at uh, millennials and uh, sorry, baby boomers as well as Gen Xers, we're all there, and and those are growing as well. So the biggest category growth for YouTube was the uh, 55 plus category the, the past year. Okay, a lot of social media platforms started out as kind of uh, a place for to share share vacation photos and indiv- individual connections with friends and family. But now, of course, it's it's growing as a huge business with a lot of businesses active and advertising on these platforms and, and brands. Uh, being very prominent on it and people being able to weigh in and what they like and don't like about their their consumer choices, right? That is exactly it. And the commercial interest of ours, besides the interesting stats that we throw out there, is we have clients that are interested in this kind of stuff. And we have 
we measured it in a couple of different ways. And one of them is we, we asked people to measure their total hours and total time they spend on social media in a given week. And what percentage of their time is interacting with brands, with companies, with the commercial side of the world. And that number has gone up from 18% in 2016 to 24%. And that's every interaction. So that's, uh, you know, advertising, click-throughs, uh, commentary on brands, likes, dislikes, just that whole activity around uh, uh, commercial enterprises. It used to be, as you say, just the domain of friends and pictures and very exclusive domain. And corporations had a hard time breaking that mold. And now we're seeing this, uh, this transformation where brands and interaction with companies is really taken over. It's really the corporatization, if you will, of, of social media. Yeah, for sure. And do you see it across the entire entire kind of economic spectrum? I mean, like a lot of people will go online to read restaurant reviews and that kind of thing. But, you know, are you seeing other other branches of the economy also getting on board with uh, social media advertising and connecting with their customers? Well, one of the things that one of the biggest categories is the dislikes. So, so not just, uh, you know, disliking, but reviews on Facebook. And those yeah. are confined to a pretty exclusive category. So you can imagine uh, at the top of the list, so we have uh, uh, 50% of Canadians have taken to Facebook in 2019 to complain about a company, and that number's wow. jumped from 33% in 2016, so a massive increase. Wow. Uh, Twitter also going from 17% to 23%, and the culprits at the top of the list would be restaurants and telecommunications companies. About <laughs> a fifth of uh, complaints are in those uh, each of those categories. Retail as well is a popular one. Uh, fourth on the list is e-commerce, online purchases, and then then the last uh, one on this particular list is airlines. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to go online and check restaurant reviews and stuff. But, you know, I've done that. A lot of people have done that. And I guess it's good and bad in a way, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's it's great for cons- giving consumers an opportunity to have feedback, and maybe it's great for the businesses who can improve their they want to improve their customer satisfaction and their and their ratings online, which I think is a good thing. I, I've heard some other businesses complain about it, though, too. I mean, do you, do you think on, on the whole it's, it's good for consumers and for business? I think it is good. It's not just a platform for complaining and just griping, general griping. The, we we probed a little bit further and we asked why. Like, what's your individuals, when they do complain, what are they hoping to get out of it? And about a quarter of Canadians are looking for a response and a resolution from the brand itself. They're expecting, and this happens all the time, if you want to get heard, don't call the restaurant or don't call the airline. Post uh, something on Twitter, and lo and behold, you're going to get a reply and saying, oh, sorry about your experience. Here's a coupon or here's uh, here's some resolution for your complaint. Um, and some of them, it's really only a small number who just purely want to vent. Um, but and the other half, about fifty percent of social complainers want other people to know. So that's their it's their way of getting back, if you will, at those companies. Okay. Okay. Talking about social media with Steve Mossip from Insights West. I mean, as you mentioned, that usage of these social media platforms, the big ones, uh, continuing to grow. But Canadians also registering concerns, right, about the, the type of information they see online, the trustworthiness of it. Tell me about some of the concerns that you heard about in the survey. Well, this is an ongoing theme, and we've measured it in, in about three or four different ways over the past six months. And the previous release that we did was about a month ago was really uh, it was really inspired by some of the concerns that people have around election tampering. And that floated to the top about a year ago, and we said we would delve into it a bit further. But we've got about the same number, about 80% of Canadians who are really concerned that uh, social media is going to have a negative influence on election outcomes. And they're really concerned that 
not only a negative income, but it won't actually sway the vote, that the actual election outcome can be determined by social media. And that, and if yeah. you break that down further, it's really, it goes into, well, well who, what does that mean? It's, it's really a combination of things, it's special interest groups having their say on social media platforms, it's political parties, and it's individuals. So the, the three combinations of things uh, have really uh, maybe raised the alarm bells of Canadians. And as a result, an interesting stat coming out of it, we... I think for the most part, Canadians don't like government regulations, but we have about 80% of Canadians who feel that we should regulate these big companies. They shouldn't have a free-for-all. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Very timely survey. Steve, thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thank you, Mike. Let's talk about the O.J. Simpson case now. It was 25 years ago this month. The bodies of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were discovered at a horrifying crime scene in L.A. As the whole world knows... O.J. Simpson, charged with those murders, found not guilty in the trial of the century. Simpson also back in the news this month after he started a Twitter account and posted a video saying he has some getting even to do. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Kim Goldman. She is a victim's rights advocate. She is the sister of Ron Goldman. I highly recommend her new podcast, confronting oj simpson i'm very pleased and to welcome her to the show thanks very much thanks very much for coming on today sure i have great admiration for you and i'm sorry for the injustice inflicted on your family i I think your podcast is terrific let's talk about the uh the anniversary 25 years ago you lost your brother are these anniversaries difficult for you i mean you hit like 10 years 20 years now 25 years um, you know, honestly, every day is hard um, living my life without my brother. Um, I think what happens on some of the bigger marks um, is just a reminder of how long it's been. Um, but yes, having uh, all the additional attention drawn um, just pours a little bit of salt in the water, you know, is already an open wound. But, um, you know, it's hard every day. So you learn how to brace yourself. How did you find out? How did you get that news that day? Um, my dad, actually, my dad uh, was living in Los Angeles. I was in San Francisco. Um, he had been listening to the news all day, um, not knowing that my brother was the unknown other victim um, in the news reports. Uh, they were just released Nicole's name. Um, and so about 5 o'clock, my dad found out from the coroner. She called our home and told my dad. And then um, my dad immediately called me. I was living in San Francisco, and he called me. Um, I was not home, so it's about an hour and a half later that I finally connected with my dad, and he shared with me, you know, asked if I knew what had happened and heard the news, and I didn't. Um, and he kept asking me, you know, do you know about Nicole Brown Simpson? I said, I don't know who that is. She gets to the point. I was so frustrated. Um, and then he just blurted it out that my brother died. Um it was just such a surreal moment because I had seen footage on the news that day, just at my break at work, um, just a quick glimpse um, of bodies being removed from a crime scene, but I didn't obviously know what I was watching. Um, wow. So it was just obviously very jarring. Was O.J. Simpson immediately a suspect in your mind at that time? I honestly had no idea who he was. Um, we, we grew up in Chicago, so uh, I no, I didn't have any thoughts of guilt or innocence. Um, I learned about everything right along with the public. And the, the events of that time are just emblazoned on our co- kind of collective memory. I mean, people remember the, the slow speed 
Bronco chase of O.J. Simpson. Uh, did you watch that on TV? Yes. Um, we were at our home, um, and I think we knew that he we, that he fled. Um, we were watching the press conference in the morning, and I was remember feeling frustrated that he was able to turn himself in. Um, and then the police chief, Garçon, got on the news and said that he was a fugitive because he didn't turn himself in. And then I think we were just glued to the TV once the news broke that they found him on the freeway. Um, you know, we had, again, we had no idea. I mean, we were very new to the situation. We didn't have a ton of information. Uh, and we just were following right along with the public. Let's talk a little bit about the trial. In the podcast, you go over some of the decisions made by the prosecution in the trial. You talk to prosecutors, Marsha Clark and, and Chris Darden, some of the decisions that, that they made, and also some of the evidence that was not presented to the jury. Do you think the prosecution did a good job, or do you think mistakes were made? Um, I, I think probably both. Um, I've always had a high respect um, for the district attorney's office and, you know, everybody that was involved in putting on my brother's and Nicole's trial. I, of course, think that there was probably mistakes that were made, but I think we only know that after the fact. Um, I think at the time, I think I believed wholeheartedly that they were putting on a heck of a case because we had, you know, hundreds of pieces of evidence that pointed to one person. Um, so I don't think I understood the ramifications of one decision over another. I've had a lot of years to reflect and you know, think about it and talk to other people about it. And I think now it's easy for me to find that maybe they replace it, but I don't think anything would have made a difference with that jury. How about asking Simpson to try the gloves on in front of the jury? This is probably the most famous scene in the courtroom where Simpson struggles to put the gloves on and said they didn't fit. Uh -huh. Do you think that was clearly a mistake by the prosecutors to do that? Well, you know, uh, and the episode uh, 104, which is actually available today, we talked to Chris Darden about that, um, his decision to do that. Um, I, you know, I think Chris would, would probably think it was a mistake. But again, at the time, it, we we knew where his gloves, you know, they were, they were his gloves. And so, I, and I was there. I saw him put them on. I saw him fake struggle to have them fit. I mean, I, I saw what was going on in there. And so, yes, I think, again, when you believe it wholeheartedly in all of your evidence, you don't think anything's going to backfire on you. But, you know, should he have not done that in that moment because we didn't know what was coming? Maybe. But, again, nothing would have made a difference with that jury. You just nothing would have mattered. One of the things I find interesting in the podcast is some of the evidence that was not presented at the trial. There, there was a woman, for example, who said she saw O.J. Simpson driving erratically in the, in the white Bronco with the headlights turned off near the murder scene at around the time of the killings, and yet she was not called as a witness. Well, I think so. You're referring to Jill Shively, um, yeah. and she, uh, at the time, she sold her story to uh, the tabloid news program, Hard Copy, and that was a big no-no back then. I mean, you have to keep in mind, this is 25 years ago. That kind of maneuver was bad. Today, if you haven't sold your story, it's bad, you know? So we're in a completely different world. Maybe it would have made a difference. I don't know, but there was... the. But the science didn't make a difference. The domestic violence didn't make a difference. The blood didn't make a difference. So adding one more thing, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm sort of left with the feeling of, well, maybe we just should have put all of it in there and just, you know, then we wouldn't have all these what ifs. And I think that's what I'm struggling with. This is Mike Smith filling in for Semi Sarah today. Let's continue my conversation now 
with Kim Goldman. Kim, let's talk about the verdict now. When, when everyone was, was told that the jury had reached a verdict after just four hours, did you think that was a, a good sign that they had reached a verdict that quickly, or were you worried? Um, I, I was worried. I didn't understand, um, you know, what it meant. Um, and I, that day, um, it, you know, we just listened to people talk about it and tell me their opinions about it. And I, and everybody was split, you know, um, it was either, oh my God, it's because they, it has to be guilty. There was nothing else they needed to decide. Um, and then other people, you know, thought a hundred percent the opposite. So I went in there thinking, um, I had no idea what they were going to do because I'd watched the jury and, I couldn't read them. Um, yeah. So in hindsight, um, talking to the jurors for the podcast, um, they basically told me that that three and a half hour deliberation was a bunch of BS. It was Every- just covering covering up for boredom, basically. Everyone remembers the television images of the courtroom that day with, with you in tears, embracing your father, Fred Goldman. When those words were read out, not guilty, what went through your mind? Um, I, I felt, um, shock and disbelief, um, uh, and just sadness. Um, I felt like we had let my brother down. Um, it felt, I felt betrayed. Um, you know, I was raised to believe in the justice system and, you know, that's where you go to find the truth. And, um, I just, I felt like we didn't, that didn't happen for us that day. And I just felt very betrayed. All right. Simpson found not guilty, but it wasn't over. Your family has never stopped fighting. You filed that civil lawsuit against O.J. Simpson. He was found responsible for the deaths of Nicole and your brother, Ron. He was ordered to pay $33.5 million. Has your family ever received any money at all from Simpson? No. Um, you know, the, the our, our legal system here in the States is a little funky. There's a lot of protections for people that owe money. And he uh, insulated himself very well by a team of attorneys. Um, he moved to a state that is a debtor-friendly state, so everything he earned and had there was protected by by the laws of that state. His pensions are all protected. And then any other money he was earning, he was doing under, under nefarious rules. <laughs> so we weren't able to attach anything except... If I did a book, we ended up with that um, and had to, were forced to publish that. Um, right. And then some of that money had to go back and pay for his own debts, which was ironic. But He did nine years in jail for robbery and kidnapping on an unrelated charge. He's out of jail now. Uh, he was back in the news the other day after he started a Twitter account. I, I just looked at it this morning, Kim. He's got like over 800,000 followers there. Does, does that bother you? Yes, it bothers me that he's out and, and out free out of prison. Um, it bothers me that he's back in the public eye um, and that I have to find another wall of armor to protect myself so that I don't get hurt from that because it's painful and it's hard to keep deflecting all the time. Um, but I do find myself checking out the comments um, and I get a little comic relief for that because people are unrelenting and just because he has 800,000 followers does not mean that those are 800,000 fans. What did you think of that video he put out? And he said he's got some getting even to do. What? How do you interpret that? I, I interpret that as as uh, narcissistic and sick as he's always been. Um, you know, I'm surprised that that's, well, I'm not surprised that that's what he would start with. But a part of me feels like, where's your PR guy? You know, telling you that that's the first thing you say. Um, 
I, I don't know. It's all about him. It's always been um, he wants the attention drawn to him, and, and he's getting it for sure. But, I mean, come on, dude. The mother of mm-hmm. your children were murdered, and your Twitter account is two days after, and that's the first thing you say. Well, Jeez. well, he also told the Associated Press the other day that he, he plays golf every day, and he doesn't think about the murders, which to me is, is revealing as well. I mean, if your ex-wife was murdered and you don't think about that? Well, you know, he, he, he talks about living in a no-negative zone, but then literally yeah. the next day comes out and, and has that, you know, says, I want to get even. I mean, I counsel kids for a living, and to not talk about grief, not talk about trauma, that's bad for recovery. Um, and he says he never talks about it with the kids. I mean, I don't know what you say to your kids. Sorry, I killed your mom. I mean, I don't know how you comfort them through that. I understand you don't use the name O.J. Simpson. You call him something else, right? I do. I call him the killer. I always have. Um, nothing will happen to me if I call him by his name. I just choose not to. Um, it seems too um, too familiar, too informal. Uh, yeah. And so I call him by what he is, and that's a killer. The podcast is called Confronting O.J. Simpson. I've heard that you've, you've actually want to do that. You actually, at one point, wanted to confront O.J. Simpson. You wanted to, did you ask to see him in jail at, at one point? I did. Um, when he was he was in prison, um, I sent a couple of letters and requests to see if I could see him in prison. It's part of part of the process for me. There's a lot of victims and survivors that believe in the restorative justice process, and and in that process, you seek to confront the person that perpetrated a crime against you. Um, I don't know that I had questions. I don't know that I had anything I wanted to say. It was more of a visual thing for me, um, just wanting to see him behind bars. And me being able to walk out and have him be left, um, but that 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 meeting never happened. Did he respond at all to the request? He he did not. I mean, my my communication uh, was with his attorney uh, at the time, Yael Galanter, and ultimately they wanted me to sign a um, a non disclosure agreement to say that it never happened and I could never speak about it, and I had to pretend like it didn't occur, and I just wasn't willing to do that. So. I still have those feelings of wanting to see him confront him. I don't really know what it's about. I can't entirely explain it. I think it's very normal. Um, and so that's why I've invited him to participate. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but it's part of part of my, my, my story. You've asked him to be, be a part of the podcast, right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have invited him through, you know, whatever means I can um, to, you know, include him in this process. Um, Again, there's this there's this feeling I have in the pit of my stomach that I need something, um, and it's hard to explain unless you've experienced it. Um, it's about the 25 years and the the mark that it's left on my heart, my life, and all the people that were involved in this case. Just lastly, Kim, just about your brother Ron. Of course, this is all about your brother Ron. The very first episode of the podcast is about him, your relationship with him, and you interview some of his friends. What do you want people to remember about your brother? Um, the first episode, you know, was probably the most difficult, um, the most wonderful and loving, but the hardest. Um, uh, I, I think people will realize about my brother is how loved he was, um, how much his friends adored him, how fun he was. Um, he just always had such a positive outlook. He was, he was the goofy one between the two of us. I was the book worm. Uh, and he was just a lover of life guy. And, um, you know, my brother was my best friend and my protector. And what he did in the last couple minutes of his life really kind of epitomizes exactly who he was. And I was, you know, a hero and someone who acted selflessly to try to protect somebody else.
How are you doing, by the way, these days? I mean, you, I mean, you sound very confident. And are, you, are you doing okay? <laughs> You're sweet. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm a, I'm a one day at a time kind of girl. I'm a, I'm a mom to a 15 and a half year old. So the fact that you say I sound calm, calm is surprising. <laughs> um, but I, I run a charity, a uh, nonprofit organization, the Youth Project, and I counsel teens. I've been doing that since 2005. I volunteer. I'm a I vice chair for the National Center of Victims of Crime. I advocate. I write. I run my kids' basketball team. I mean, I'm just you know you, you take it one day at a time and and ask for help when you need it. So that's where I'm at. Thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Did you hear the other day that the BC government had decided to reduce the electric vehicle rebate available to you if you buy an electric vehicle? It was $5,000 from the provincial government if you bought an electric car. Uh, They dropped that down to $3,000. They also reduced the eligibility threshold for the rebate. It had been available on cars priced up to $77,000. You could buy some nice vehicles at that sort of higher end. You can get a BMW, even a Mercedes for that. But they dropped that down to $55,000. So a lot of vehicles in the higher end were not no longer available for the rebate. Now, why did they do that? Well, they did it because they said this program was a victim of its own success. They had budgeted $42.5 bucks for this. And so many people loved these rebates. And why not? Are you kidding me? Five grand. And plus the feds are kicking in 5000 too. I mean, this is a great deal. So the provincial government said, well, maybe it was too great a deal. Too many people taking them up on the offer. So they had to reduce the amount of the rebate i find that kind of strange from a government that's declared a climate emergency you cut the rebate for switching to an electric car maybe didn't be going the other way increase it get people to buy an electric vehicle i find it interesting let's check in with peter millibar now he's a bc liberal mla he's official opposition critic hiya peter hi thanks for having me on thank you for coming on um what did you think of the government's decision to do this well, it's very disappointing and very misleading. Um, and I say that because four weeks ago, when I was questioning in estimates, uh, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of the Environment, and the Minister uh, Mongolia of Energy, um, all of them, when asked, and, and I pointed out that they were going to run out of money in, in 18 weeks at the current rate of intake, said not to worry, uh, said it wasn't underfunded. Uh, they said that there was a $37 million contingency fund for this year. Um, and uh, here we are six weeks later. They're a third of the way through the money. Uh, this money is actually supposed to last for three years, according to their own budget documents. And uh, I pointed out they needed to have about $1.5 billion for subsidies uh, if they wanted to meet their 2030 targets. And so uh, the fact that they were, they were, you know, four weeks ago telling everyone not to worry and they have it well under hand um, just was patently misleading. And how can you trust them on all their other climate goals and climate actions and, and, uh, and funding if they can't even get something as simple as, as how much money they need for the, the car subsidy? Well, I'm also thinking about someone who was maybe planning to buy one of these vehicles. And if they had heard the provincial minister, the minister saying like, oh, the, the program's fully funded, there's no problem. That would lead you, uh, maybe a consumer, to have confidence that that rebate's going to be there. Like, I feel sorry for someone who was like, maybe last week, was thinking about buying one of these electric vehicles and then decided 
they would wait a week. Maybe they had a dentist appointment or something. And I'll, well, I'll, I'll buy it next week. And then the government comes along and says, well, I'm taking 2000 bucks out of your pocket because we're going to lower the uh, lower the rebate without any uh, advance warning. Yeah, and not only that, not only without any advance warning, but let's let's face it, they do it in you know early on a Saturday. Yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, no one won't notice, and they make their headlines sound like they're putting actually more money into than they budgeted. Oh yeah, um, no, so the, totally the misleading re- there as well. Yeah, the press release was very sneaky. Not only the timing of its release, but also the headline. Yeah, I think they were hoping nobody would notice, but a lot of people noticed. But do you support the rebates? Well, you know, the VC Liberals started the whole rebate program. Okay. This government just continued them on. Uh, the point is that they have no credibility or, or trust when it comes to, to this whole rebate uh, program. And, and I pointed out to, to Minister Mongol when, uh, when we were talking about the electric vehicle bill that would see uh, all new vehicles by 2040 be electric that are sold. Right. Um, that with this new bill in place and million-dollar fines for manufacturers that don't meet their quotas, yeah. um, if they don't meet their quota trying to sell a vehicle that people might not want, uh, the government can now find them a million dollars, and they could walk away from the subsidization program. And why that's important is in every jurisdiction where subsidies have been removed, the sales plummet. And so they have oh. essentially legislated a workaround to the fact that they have underfunded what is supposed to be their signature marquee piece of clean BC. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what, what's the liberal position on this? The government should have continued the full rebate. Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. They should have continued it. They should live up to what they just said even four weeks ago. Uh, Minister yeah. uh, James made it very clear. There was uh, up to $37 million in contingencies. That seems to have just suddenly disappeared now. Um, is that because their books are a little softer than they were projecting with uh, real estate sales slower and, and a few other revenue streams lower? No one really knows because four weeks ago she had contingencies uh, on Saturday. They suddenly didn't. Oh, okay. So she said they had a $30 million contingency fund they could dip into for this? 37.3. And, and Minister Mongol confirmed that two days later when being questioned again. I mean, May 6th, and there was a there was a delay. People were waiting for the May 1st deadline for the federal government program to kick in, and that's understandable. May 6th, when I asked Minister Mongol about uh, the uptake rate, she said, actually said, and it's enhanced. Oh, well, don't worry. Things are slowing down and moderating. Five days after oh. the program started in earnest. Well, here we are four weeks later, and it is not slowing down. And instead of them adjusting and f- figuring out how to make this program actually work properly, at least for through the year, yeah. um, they didn't. I mean, they spent fifty-seven million on this program last year alone, and they budgeted forty-two million for three years. So, where you know, when I talk about the carbon tax not going where it should be and where what it was intended to do, um, this is a good case. They, they're collecting two point three five billion dollars in extra carbon taxation. And they're underfunding their signature program at the same time while dumping the rest of that money into general revenue. Okay, okay. I want to get to the carbon tax in a second, but I, I find it astonishing that a minister on this portfolio would even hint or suggest that she thought this the demand for this rebate was going to slow down. Like, I mean, I mean, you're getting five thousand bucks from the province and another five thousand from the feds. I mean, ten thousand dollars. I mean, this is a this is a deal. This is an awesome deal. I don't know why she would think that that would the demand for that would slow down. I mean, I think that the no-brainer analysis of that should be you'd know it's going to go up, maybe dramatically go up. Well, absolutely, and and the ten thousand was only for those cars at fifty-five thousand or less because that's the federal threshold. 
And so okay, okay. Uh, the fact the province sinks thresholds, uh, you, you could perhaps make an argument for understanding that. Um, but, you know, so the province was the sole uh, subsidy for those fifty-five dollars to $75,000 vehicles. So it's not like people buying a $70,000 car were getting a $10,000 rebate. They were getting a a 5,000 rebate. Right. And and so, you know, it it, it comes to credibility. The the bottom line is this. And, and, you know, Clean BC has been severely underfunded. How is industry supposed to have any faith that the exact same ministers uh, were answering questions around uh, the industry uh, payback uh, under Clean BC when they tried to modernize their their technologies and reduce their emissions? Uh, the, the ministers were saying the exact same thing about those programs, that they're fully funded, that there's no worry that they won't run out of money. Well, if they can't manage something as simple as a car rebate program, how are they going to manage something as complex as pulp mill rebates and forestry rebates and, and cement plant rebates and all of those other types of uh, industry out there? Let me ask you about the carbon tax, because I, I think you you make a really good point there. And when again, there was another liberal program here. It was the liberals who brought in the carbon tax. And when the Liberals are in power, you guys had a rule that the carbon tax was supposed to be revenue neutral. So any increase in the carbon tax was supposed to be offset by reductions in other taxes, like income taxes. This government removed the revenue neutrality, said we're going to collect the money into to the government coffers into general revenue, and we're going to spend it on wonderful stuff to save the planet. I would imagine that getting people to switch to an electric car should be like at or near the top of the list as a priority so if they're collecting all this money in a carbon tax how much did you say they're getting on it the carbon tax so the the added carbon tax we will pay over four years going from thirty dollars a ton that it was under us to the fifty dollars a ton they will collect an additional 2.35 billion dollars and they can account for about 900 million for clean bc 2.35 billion and yet they're cutting this rebate for an electric vehicle what what, what is Absolutely. that what what do you say about that well and that's that's the point uh, you know the carbon tax was supposed to be and intended to to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to help people yeah. transition uh, to provide for programs that people could access and use um, that's most clearly not what's happening. And this is the first and, and the smallest ticket item of that $900 million. So again, how is any, how is any industry supposed to have faith um, that the $168 million that's budgeted for three years is enough to actually last them? And in fact, Minister Heyman said that out of the $300 million in contingencies, most of that is earmarked for industry as well when we went through the calculations. It, 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 they, they're showing a complete lack of transparency and competency on this. And, and uh, you know, it's not right. Uh, people should be able to know uh, what it is uh, the government is actually truly budgeting for and what is, what is actually going to be the effect. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA. And, you know, I mean, he's going to get his shots in at the NDP. I understand that. It's partisan politics. But at the same time, I think he raises some really good points, especially about the carbon tax. I mean, here you got this government collecting over two billion bucks in carbon taxes to save the planet, and they cut this rebate for electric vehicles. Come on. That's terrible. Today, let's talk about this fall's federal election. I'll tell you what, this is going to be a barn burner of an election. If you take a look at some of the trend lines and the opinion polls and the, the way they're breaking, I mean, you got like a four horse race here. 
You got Trudeau's liberals, Andrew Shear's conservatives, and you got the NDP, of course, but you got the Green Party coming on too. So I think kind of a four-way fight, and it's wide open. Who knows what's going to happen? What will be the determinants of the outcome of this election? Well, how about the youth vote? Millennials. Millennials get a bad rap for having a low voter turnout, for maybe not being as interested in politics and public policy as they should be. I don't know. Maybe there's some truth to that, but I, I think the trend lines are showing going the other way, though, too. If you take a look at some of the predictions of voter turnout for millennials, maybe this time the millennial vote could swing the entire election outcome. Let's talk about that now with David Coletto. He's for the uh, CEO of Abacus Data. He's a researcher on youth voting trends. David, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mark. Thank- Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, tell me about what your data tells you about youth voter turnout and what you anticipate we're going to see. Well, yeah, well, what, one thing we can do is look at the past. And what we know yep. from the 2015 election, from Elections Canada estimates, is that we saw a, a surge, actually, in youth voter turnout in the last federal election, up 20 points among the youngest cohort, aged 18 to 24, 15-point increase or so among the, the next uh, group. So millennials... Um, in, in that last election, turned out in, in record numbers, right? We hadn't seen that kind of youth engagement in politics at any level of government, really, um, for, for quite some time. And so as we look to October and the, the, the upcoming federal election, a big question is, will we see that same kind of engagement? Because as you said, this is the largest voter group. There are more millennials yeah. eligible to vote than baby boomers or Gen Xers. And so if they do show up, if they do come out and they and if they vote collectively, right, for one option or one or two options, they do have the power uh, to, to decide a close election. In the same way that, frankly, baby boomers can do that, too, because they're such a large cohort. Yeah. Um, but what we but what we do know is that um, there was there was a spike in turnout last time, a level of interest that we hadn't seen before. And there is some evidence to say they're paying attention, but I'm not fully convinced yet that millennials are as engaged or as excited or as motivated about this current election and the the actors in it and the parties available to them than I think it was last time. And so we'll, we'll see. But there's certainly a threat um, or an opportunity, yeah. depending on what political party you are. When we talk about millennials, how do you how do you define that, David, between what sort of dates of birth there is a millennial yeah, vote? 1980 to 2000. So you've got a 20-year okay. Time frame. So I'm a I'm a millennial. I'm 37. I'm sort of the oldest side of it, and yeah. um, you know the youngest one's going to be about 19. So they're all eligible to vote now. This will be the first federal election which every millennial, by that definition, will be able to vote. Right. Okay. So between like 19 and 38, I yeah. guess is what we're talking about, and that's a big chunk of the electorate, right? It's yeah. It's upwards of you know depending on you know we don't have pure numbers. Um, but it's, it's, you're looking at like 35% of the electorate. So if, you know, wow. one out of three voters in Canada, eligible voters, um, come from this generation, which, which is true in the United States and elsewhere. So this is a, a very powerful group if they want to be. Okay. If they want to be, I, I guess is kind of the key caveat there. And do you think millennials get a, an unfair rap on being not as engaged as they should be in politics? Um, not not entirely unfair. I think you know there. We know if you look at the history of voting behavior, younger people generally, regardless of what generation they're from, have always been less likely to vote. So that that's a yeah. trend that that has always really existed. But I do think you know millennials 
um, and politics, you know, whether it's uh, at the provincial level, like in BC, where where turnout is not as high as, as at the federal level, millennials are often the reason why that's that's the case. They don't seem to engage at every election or at every moment, right? And so they're, they're this more volatile group. But I do think, you know, as someone who's from the generation who follows politics very closely, who's engaged on these issues, it does it does disappoint me that you do find, you know, young people who, on the one hand, you know, are feeling anxious about their future, aren't able to afford to buy a home, you know, are worried about climate change. They've got all these, we've got all these big issues that they right. are engaged on. Yeah. And yet they, there's this disconnect with whether voting and getting engaged in politics will help solve it. And I right. think part of the blame is for them, to them, but I think part of the blame has to fall on our political leaders and institutions as well, who may not be engaging or appealing to them or asking them to participate. Um, and, and, and one of the things we do know about millennials versus older Canadians is this notion of duty. The duty to vote is not as strong, right? Whereas for my parents' generation, for my grandparents, you voted because that's what you should do, and you should always vote. I don't think the typical millennial approaches um, that, that behavior, that, that act, in the same way. Instead, there has to be a reason for me to show up. You have to right. ask me. You have to engage me. And, and that, you know, for some drives people crazy because they're like, well, this is your right. People fought and died for this right. They, others around the world don't have this right. Why aren't you taking advantage of it? We view it, I think, in a, in a, in a slightly and more nuanced way about it. And that, that to some is frustrating for others. I think it explains why we don't participate as much. Okay, speaking of David Coletto, he's the CEO of Abacus Data. We're talking about some of the latest research on youth voting trends. Could the millennial vote potentially swing the election in the fall? And, you know, there have been efforts made, David, to leverage the youth vote, get more people interested in public policy and politics, and get more young people to the ballot box on, on voting day. Elections Canada, I thought, interestingly, had this plan to use social media influencers, as they're known, to persuade young Canadians to register and vote. So they were going to line up YouTubers and athletes and, and other kind of social media celebrities and do some uh, public information advertising to get people to come out. And that was scrapped. Did you hear about that? They scrapped that plan. Yeah, they scrapped it because some of the, the people they lined up you know, were, were clearly partisan or had said certain things about different political parties that made it hard for the election administration, uh, who's supposed to be fully nonpartisan, um, to, to, to be paying these people to, to advocate uh, for people to vote. Yeah, so great idea, I think, in concept, in theory. Yeah. But I think Elections Canada got caught executing it uh, probably not, okay. not well. And I think the challenge is good luck finding influencers who don't have opinions. Yeah, because the whole point, you know, the whole idea of an influencer is that they share their opinions. They're they're persuading the people who follow them, and so I I think you know, anyways, it's it's it. We we hear a lot about influencer marketing being a, a really important part of the modern marketing world, and I think the same is true in politics. But I think um, this was a this was a case of Elections Canada probably not fully thinking through or or, or vetting the people that they identified as potential. Uh, influencers in their project. Okay, what's a better what's a better way to do that? I mean, maybe it makes sense to try to be doing something to connect young people and get them out to vote. What do you think? Could Elections Canada do something else, or maybe political parties should be doing a better job? Well, I think Elections Canada has done some other things that are are actually helpful. If if your goal is to increase turnout generally, 
you have to make it as easy as possible to vote, I think, right? Convenience, particularly for millennials, is so important. Like, we, we don't line up for things. We don't wait for things. And so if we're going to have to line up for three hours to vote or two hours to vote, or if it's only going to happen on one or two days in a, in a month period, it gives me every excuse not to do it. So I think Elections Canada has, has already made some changes. I think we saw in the Alberta provincial election um, that happened earlier this year that they extended the advanced polling days for longer. They made it easier for people to actually vote. Those are things that I think an election administration, you know, organization like Elections Canada can do um, just to make it easier for everybody uh, to find time to vote. But I think it falls on political parties, maybe, you know, youth oriented organizations to, to be the ones who actually try to mobilize people and get them out to vote because it's, it's more about persuasion on that sense. And I'm not convinced that Elections Canada should be in that business um, because okay. what we know from the research is younger people typically vote for certain parties over others. Right. And so if you really do focus on increasing youth turnout and the concern, federal conservatives have argued this, and I not necessarily disagree with it, that it does help one party or one or two parties sure. over another. Sure. I mean, you so, might have young, young voters less likely to vote conservative. So the conservatives were not, were not happy about it. So, yeah. Hey, David, thanks for coming. Why. I understand why. But so do I. I, I understand the it goal too. Of, of, of getting turnout up is important. So it's, it's about how they do it. That's really important. David, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having uh, me. Uh, yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. David Coletto, he is the CEO of Abacus Data. He's done a lot of really good re- research on youth voting trends. A photo of three-year-old Alan Curdy's lifeless body washed up on that Turkish beach in 2015 became a tragic symbol of the European refugee crisis and the rallying cry for to help families f- fleeing war-torn Syria. Everybody remembers that photo. Curdy's mother and brother were on a mission to get to Canada with money sent by Alan's aunt, Tima Curdy, when the boat smuggling them out of Turkey capsized. Since her nephew's death became an iconic photo seen around the world, Tima became a vocal Syrian-Canadian refugees, a human rights activist. She recently wrote a book entitled The Boy on the Beach, which recounted her family's escape from Syria. Tima has been speaking with CKNW today about another disturbing photo that is shocking people uh, taken earlier this week. It's being widely shared today after it, was being, after it was published in a Mexican newspaper. It shows a man and a twenty his 23-month-old daughter dead in shallow water along the banks of the Rio Grande River. The photo highlights the deadly risks faced by Central American refugees crossing into the United States. For Tima... The image takes her back to a very painful time for her family. Yesterday, somehow, um, I saw this image, and uh, all of a sudden, it really break my heart. And, and I can't even describe the pain. What I saw in that image of that little girl, you know, the way she was, maybe the red color, maybe is the water. It's just reminding me of my nephew Alan. It's just uh, unacceptable, and I felt so much in pain that I couldn't sleep. Honestly, last night I couldn't think sleep thinking about this innocent, especially the children. You know, the way her hands wrap around her father. You know, I could 
not even take it off my head. What the father was, was saying to her when they were crossing is the same feeling when Abdullah, my, my brother, was describing when he was holding his kids and his wife in the water to not let them go and trying their best to give them the love to protect them. I was even thinking about that, Father. Hold on, my daughter. It's going to be okay. Hold on tight to me. We're going to make it. You know, this all the thought, I could not sleep at night thinking about it because it's it's unacceptable. We live in this sad world. We, as an individual citizen, we let it happen. It's all up to us to stand up from our silence and speak up on behalf of those desperate poor people who make, um, who've been forced to take a danger journey. If it's they're fleeing from war, uh, you know, war poverty destroy people's life. And we need to help them. We need to be their voice. We need to show more images Media should always show those images to move people to to take action. We cannot be silent anymore. We can't. It's Tima Curdy speaking earlier today to CKNW. She says it's important that people see these difficult photos because it helps people to understand what's really going on. You know, to me, after the image of uh, my nephew, Alan Curdy, um, you know, and again, it was a symbol of the, ref- the Syrian refugee crisis and people moved by it and um, make them to take action and help. And we saw this for a year almost or more. The, the important is where the media can help and show those images because we live in our uh, you know, peaceful country, we live in our comfortable home. We have no idea what those people go through and why they're doing those kind of um, danger or risking their life or children. I understand them. So media, when they show those kind of images, I want people to not block it. I want people to continue seeing it, to move them so they can help in any way they can it's it's all up to us it's become you know um worse and it's it's i don't know where are we going and how many images does the world need to see before we actually say enough you know we can um go to our government and tell our politician and find the solution it doesn't matter what situation they are, those poor people, innocent people, they are doing. They've been forced to do it, not by choice. I always say that. All right, Tima Kurdi. Abdullah Kurdi is Tima's brother and the father of Alan Kurdi, and Tima recounted what it was like showing her brother the photo of that drowned man and his daughter. I wasn't sure if Abdullah uh, saw this, uh, this news, so I called him. And I said, Abdullah, did you hear the news about that little girl with her father drowned, uh, fleeing Mexico? And he said, uh, no, send me the link. So 
when I sent him the link while we were speaking, and he just was silent. I thought the connection was, you know, uh, cut off or something. So all of a sudden, I hear him, he's sound crying, and I say, what's wrong, Abdullah? I'm sorry, I shouldn't really send you this link. And he said, oh, my God, like, this is a heartbreaking. This is remind me of my family. Is the same moment where I was holding Alan and Ghalib and my wife and screaming for an hour to get help and not let them go. It's just, this is really innocent. This is heartbreaking. And I hope the world will continue to share this photo the same as the photo of my son. Because this world, the people need to wake up. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today. Let's continue talking about that shocking photograph now flashing around the world today. It shows the lifeless body of a man from El Salvador and his 23-month-old daughter uh, dead on the banks of the Rio Grande in Mexico. The man's name is Oscar Alberto Martinez. His daughter's name is Valeria from El Salvador. Uh, Mexican newspapers reporting that they were trying to get into the United States seeking asylum there that they had tried to swim across the river and died and drowned in the river. This is a very disturbing, heartbreaking photograph. And as we talked about on our earlier segment, certainly brings back um, images and memories of three-year-old Alan Curdy uh, when he died. Uh, on a Turkish beach after fleeing Syria. And you heard the earlier interview we had with Tima Kurdi, his aunt, who is just heartbroken by this new photograph, which is uh, so uh, familiar for her. Today, the UN Refugee Agency is calling on all countries in the region to prevent something like this from happening again. They want better conditions for asylum seekers to get more information now let's check in with chris boyan he is the senior communications officer with the united nations high commission for refugees i'm very pleased you could come on hello chris hi mike thanks for having me on thank you for ha- for, for coming on um just following you on twitter and i see you you can you point out this absolutely heartbreaking photograph what is the uh, the u.n refugee agency saying about this today well what we're saying is that, uh, first of all, I, I know of no human being that has looked at or that could look at that photograph and not be, as you say, just heartbroken and distraught. It, it, it is impactful and powerful on so many levels to any person. I was talking to somebody earlier today describing how, you know, I, I'm a father. I had a daughter who was two. I know what it's like to have your two-year-old daughter's arm wrapped around your neck, whether she's afraid or in danger or or something more fun, hopefully. But you look at that picture, and I think a lot of people can see themselves in that picture and really yeah. see something very essential about the human condition there. So it's just, tra- it's just tragic, really. Okay, it really, it really represents the kind of the, the desperation that people feel when they're, when they're trying to uh, cross, cross borders. Um, what does it say about the conditions, I guess, in 
the United States and I guess in Mexico too about uh, the conditions for people who are who are trying to cross borders? It says that the conditions are extremely difficult and getting harder right now. And this is something that our, our organization, UNHCR, is in contact now with pretty intensively with all of the governments of the region in the Americas, in Central America, Mexico, and, and North America. And we are advocating really for all of the countries to get together and very quickly now and urgently start mapping out some real and effective operational responses to the situation that has been evolving for years, frankly. The photograph today, uh, uh, sad and tragic as that is, it also captures an aspect of a situation that has existed on the border between Mexico and the United States, frankly, for many years. Yeah. And it, it highlights the dangers that, that people can face when they uh, are forced to make uh, cross borders in irregular ways, in, in ways that are disorderly and uncontrolled, and frankly, very dangerous. It leaves those people very vulnerable. But what it, what it highlights more than anything else is the failure of the countries of this region to really address seriously the root causes that are that are forcing people to leave Central America in the first place. Right, right. Speaking to Chris Boyan from the UN High Commission for Refugees, um, Chris, what uh, what recommendations are, are you guys calling on to Im- improve conditions for people, strengthening the processing for asylum seekers that are that are seeking to enter the United States? What can be done to improve the situation? Really, it comes down to one word, and that is capacity. Um, we are calling on the countries of the region to really make a concerted effort now to first of all to boost capacity and asylum infrastructure. And what that means is making sure that there are the people and sufficient numbers of the people on borders to ensure that people in these situations have a chance to reach safe ground and have their stories heard. Now, there are, there are many people that are on the move in this part of the world for a wide variety of reasons, and not necessarily all of them are in need of international protection, as we call it, in need of, yeah. you know, of asylum and of reaching safe ground. But many, many of them now we know are, and so it's imperative that governments put in place the, the capacity, and that means not just numbers of people, but also uh, training, awareness, uh, that means asylum screeners, that means judges. That means people who are well aware of country conditions that people are fleeing. So that that capacity is in place to ensure that any human being uh, on the move is able to access, first of all, a, a, a safe and humane reception. And then that quickly those kinds of determinations can be made about who is who, who is seeking asylum, who has bona fide protection needs here, who is on the move for other reasons, perhaps, and needs a different kind of solution. Um, but th- those decisions need to be made, and the only way that they can be made is if uh, the capacity is put in place on borders, and, and that has to be done at the regional level, all countries of the region working together to share the responsibility for this. That is what we have been calling for, and that's why we've called for an urgent meeting of countries of the region, right. uh, and we're hoping that that's going to happen sooner rather than later to really map out uh, operational responses to this. How, how about the uh, the current conditions in El Salvador? We're, t- we're told that the man in the photograph and, and his daughter were from El Salvador. They had left there hoping to seek asylum in the United States. Uh, what about the conditions in El Salvador right now? Uh, are, there a, are there a lot of 
asylum seekers leaving El Salvador hoping to come into the United States right now? The conditions in Central America, not just El Salvador, but in several different countries in Central America and parts of those countries are quite dangerous and in some areas growing worse. What I'm really talking about here is the presence and the effect of the transnational criminal gangs, essentially. These are these are well-organized groups that control territory in some regions and that are exacting uh, violence on local populations that, in various areas, uh, governments and law enforcement bodies are not able to provide the protection of civilian populations that is that is needed and that is that is one of the key drivers that is forcing people to flee the region it's not the only one by any means but it's something that's really at the center of the movement of people from there that really needs to be addressed full on chris thanks for taking the time today and coming on appreciate it thanks mike thank you that chris boyan senior communications officer he's with the united nations high commission for refugees uh, commenting on that heartbreaking photograph being flashed around the world today of that man and his daughter from El Salvador. Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's start with your loser of the day, an anonymous driver, West Vancouver, West Van Cops impounded a McLaren supercar. This car is worth about 300 grand. Uh, Just late earlier this month, just minutes after the owner drove the vehicle away from the dealership. It's a brand new car. According to West Vancouver Police, a traffic patrol officer spotted the McLaren 600LT speeding westbound on Highway 1 on June 17th. Officers clocked the vehicle traveling at about 161 kilometers an hour. The speed limit there is 90 clicks an hour. This guy's going 70 kilometers an hour over the limit. Officers stopped the vehicle near Cypress Bowl Road. The driver allegedly told the officer he had just left the dealership 10 minutes earlier. West Van cops say the vehicle was towed from the scene, impounded for seven days for excessive speeding. The driver was issued... A $368 ticket. I think he's getting off easy there. Excessive speeding also comes with three driver penalty points, plus a driver risk premium, which translates to $384 hit on his insurance. I think he's getting off cheap. Whoever he is, he's the loser of the day. The winner of the day is Simon Childs and the community of Fayette county georgia now a woman took a picture of simon sleeping in a mcdonald's she posted uh, some negative facebook comments about him it turns out he's a homeless dad who is just resting between his shifts at the mcdonald's restaurant the community saw the woman's post they're now trying to help the man by donating hotel rooms and giving him clothes for him and his child listen to this report from wbs tv news since Friday, people have been coming to this McDonald's to leave donations for a man most of them have never met. What started off as a complaint on Facebook has turned into what the man is calling a blessing. If you walked in Simon Charles' bright orange shoes, you would know loss. Going through a hard time with my mom, pass it. You would know the love of a newborn son. Every decision I'm making for him. 
and you would know sacrifice. Everything I do, I want to work for it. All things you wouldn't know from a single picture of the 21-year-old. It kind of hurt to see my picture out there, you know. A McDonald's customer took this picture of Childs asleep in between shifts at the Fayetteville restaurant Friday morning and posted it on Facebook. She wrote it was another reason for her to, quote, leave Fayetteville. I thought it'd be something negative and, and nobody would care about it. But he was positively shocked when he came back to work and saw piles of donated diapers for his son, supplies, and clothes. Saved my life in a couple of days, bro. It just touched our heart. Chefs Xavier and Theo own the Fusion Chefs Eatery right down Glen Street South. Their new restaurant afforded them an opportunity to reach out to Childs to let him borrow a car for job interviews. It'll definitely make him get around to uh, give him a better opportunity. Childs says he holds no ill will toward the woman behind the Facebook post. I'm not homeless. No, not now. Thanks to her. He looks forward to getting back on his feet in bright new orange shoes donated to him in exactly the right size. I didn't think the community would even care enough to do that, but they care. And I did speak to the woman who made that original Facebook post. She says she never intended to shame anyone in particular. She said it was nothing personal, and she posted it in a private Facebook group. That group eventually learned child's story throughout the day, and the donations have not stopped ever since.